This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 36 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. In this episode, a conversation with Gavin Reed. He's the chief security architect at Recorded Future, and before that, he helped design the systems that protect organizations like NASA, Cisco, and Fidelity. We'll get his take on the state of the industry, why he believes there are a number of cybersecurity myths that are in need of being dispelled, including the notion that companies need to do more with less. Stay with us. I came to Recorded Future from Landcope, and Landcope is a NetFlow appliance uh, anomaly detection uh, type device. And I was their VP of threat intelligence, and we looked into threat, how it was detected, and in particular, how do we make the product better based off of uh, the types of typical threats that were going on. And then previous to that, I set up Fidelity's um, uh, very first threat intelligence team, and I led their cyber intelligence group that included penetration testing, audit, and red team. And then before Fidelity, I spent 15 years more or less at Cisco. Um, the last two I led, uh, Cisco's threat research and big data teams called Track at the time. Uh, those teams ended up combining with Sourcefire's VRT, their vulnerability research team, to form the much larger team now known as Talos. And for the decade before that, I started Cisco's CERT. That team started with me had steady growth over a decade to, there's around 100 people on it now with all the sort of typical things you would feel associated with a uh, enterprise uh, cert. And back in 1999, I came to Cisco from NASA at the Johnson Space Center. Hmm. At NASA, I started doing IT architecture and eventually took a role in charge of IT security for the site. Well, that's exciting. NASA certainly, uh, I bet you that's the part of your resume that uh, a lot of people say, ooh, tell me more. I've got tons of war stories. Uh, and, and really what happened at NASA, I was an admin of a, a number of axes. One of them that I adminned um, sort of got hacked. What happened is um, there were a couple of university students in France that were telnetting to this machine and using it. They were using an astronaut's uh, email to send uh, messages back and forth to each other. So we looked into that. You know, It was, it was a, sort of a misuse, but it wasn't really malicious. And the um, inspector general, um, who, who is the you know the police for the government in uh, the United States, they uh, took an interest in it, and uh, sort of from there, I ended up getting all of the um, security projects that sort of came my way, and then I formalized that with the role, I think the first role in charge of security for the IT groups at uh, NASA. As you moved through different organizations and you've dealt with threat intelligence, does is threat intelligence um, very similar from place to place? How does it change depending on what the mission of a given organization is? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously some commonality. You know, coming from initially the public sector, we did threat intelligence uh, back at NASA. You know, way before, and I think the government uh, overall has done this for a much longer time than the private sector has. Only recently has the private sector realized that it's really you know, just a matter of due diligence to pay attention to what your adversaries are doing and, and then to you know, take that uh, knowledge and those capabilities to, to use to help protect yourself. So we're coming up here on the end of 2017. Uh, as you look at the landscape, where do you think we are when it comes to cybersecurity? We're at a kind of an interesting time, right? Um, as people, we want at our fingertips 
um, to be able to access all data at all the time, right? We want reviews and directional maps on how to find it, but at the same time, um, somehow to not share any of our own personal information that would make all of that possible, right? The internet's promised we can finally have our cake and eat it. In a sort of similar dichotomy, we're in a weird place. We have cyber criminals and nation states on one side and organizations uh, and the public on the other, which is which is kind of weird. And, and that balkanization has led to the private sector forming sort of Pinkerton-like vigilante teams to bolster cybersecurity in much the same way as played out in the Wild West at the end of the 19th century. So it's it's an exciting time. There's a lot of activity, um, not all of it uh, super positive. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit. When you compare it to the Wild West, what specifically do you mean? Well, if you think of um, the Wild West was an area that didn't have uh, a whole lot of really, really strong um, policing going on, which allowed for a lot of criminal activity to uh, uh, continue. That's exactly what's happening in the cyber realm today as you know, legislation, as the uh, capabilities of the different um, government agencies, as the problems with interagency and, and global uh, cooperation, uh, all of these have compounded to make uh, sort of an area where criminality can exist without the normal penalties that we'd seen previous to the cyber age. And how do you see that evolving? Well, you know, for a while, it's going to be more of the same. It's going to take a, a while to pick up. And I think, you know, one of the big parts of uh, this evolving and changing um, for the better, for the good guys, is for organizations to realize their own responsibility, uh, their own roles in protecting themselves. I think up until now, that's sort of been put to the side um, for, for a number of different reasons. And, uh, you know, the organizations are woefully unprepared uh, for the types of activities that they've seen um, play out uh, in the news over the last five years. How do you see, uh, I'm thinking of uh, sort of social norms, and particularly I'm thinking about how GDPR is going to be kicking in uh, next year, uh, and that'll have an effect all over the world in terms of how people have to deal with privacy. I mean, it strikes me that um, the Europeans have a different approach to privacy than we have here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I wish that America was taking more of a, a leading role in uh, some of these privacy efforts, but you, you're correct. Uh, Europe has um, championed especially the rights of individuals, the rights uh, of individuals to control a lot of the data that uh, surrounds them that's now available online. We're playing second fiddle to that. As we're looking at the security situation these days, are there any things that you consider to be kind of like myths that are are holding us back? Uh, yeah, I think there's there's a number of things that have sort of uh, made made the situation worse. Right, for one, we don't need to be preparing for worst case scenarios. Right, I keep hearing hmm. cyber attacks are increasing in complexity, and and we spend a lot of time and effort worrying about crazy, well funded attacks that we see played out in the movies and. And this sort of thing is exemplified whenever an enterprise is breached, right? The CISO talks about how extremely sophisticated the attackers were. And, and of course, you know, they would, right? You don't want to say some script kitty used a well-known exploit against an unpatched browser um, <laughs> to get in. But that's exactly what's happening over and over and over again. So 
like for the last 10 years, I've been saying you will get breached, most likely through email. Uh, hackers will command and control your environment over the web and move laterally. Um, that's been how all the big hacks have happened. However, I may need to change uh, that. The new method is this, right? Search for API key credentials and get or a pace site. Log into an AWS bucket or backup. Go directly to profit. And I think that attack is going to be around for the next 10 years. More myths. User training is another good one. Uh, the idea that we train the user to detect hacks, it's a bit like if the water authority said we're responsible to test our own homes and businesses for intermittent poisoning. I think we need to provide a safe platform for people to do normal internet stuff. And until we have all the user training in the world won't help. And, and not to go on a rant here, um, but the cell of user training in my mind can be directly linked to CISOs who don't really want to attack the real issues, right? Because that, that would be hard. And this gives the CISO a project win that looks good, but doesn't really impact IT or cost too much. It's security theater with, with very little value. And, and lastly, the Band-Aid myth, right? And you're super familiar with this. For years and years, we've created hugely complex IT infrastructures. We've prioritized cost, functionality, and security, often not even invited to the table. And this has set up a situation where doing real security means a complete overhaul or re-architecture of all the crap that came before. And organizations, people, they've been loath to do that. And so enter the security vendor with a install this box on top of your crap model that promises to fix the problem. However, we've seen time and time again that it doesn't. I met uh, last month with a CISO that had a really uh, refreshing approach. And, and what the CISO said is he came into to a new role and he said, look, we're not going to do any of the normal things that a CISO does. You know, typically a CISO may come in, they have a couple of flagship projects, they sort of get them on, uh, you know, on the ground, they do some deployments, and then they move off to their next role after a couple of years. And he said, I'm going to be here, and what we're going to do is we're going to do the stuff that you think you're already doing, but you're not, like patching. We're going to start doing patching, but really doing patching. If you haven't worked in the cybersecurity world, you got to know how um, courageous that CISO was in saying that, because that would go down in most organizations like a ton of bricks. How so? Is it, is it that the patching is it an easy thing to put off? Well, for, you know, one, the organizations, the, you know, the, the board, the senior level executives, um, you know, whoever the CISO reports to, they've been told that they are doing patching and that they're doing patching effectively for the you know, past 10 years. And so the idea that they're going to bring in some new talent, some new blood, and what they're going to do is just do what they think they're already getting. It doesn't sound as sexy as a new, you know, anomaly detection uh, advanced malware, you know, radar um, uh, to incident uh, um, to remediation automation uh, type project sounds. Yeah, it also strikes me that there's this sort of inherent disproportionality where, uh, you know, it's that old story about how the defenders have to be right all the time and the bad guys only have to be right once. Exactly. And so, yeah, doing 80% of the patching is definitely better than doing none, but it's only really totally effective when you're doing 100% of the patching all the time. And that's a continuous thing, right? No one will ever be it. It's like saying, I want my beard to be 100% shaved all the time. There is a, a point of, you know, when you have good value for capability that people need to look at. And unfortunately, we've been erring way on the 
let's just do as much as we have to, and the other 20% that doesn't get patched will, uh, you know, um, hopefully get done on the next round. And unfortunately, that's led to a huge uh, area of opportunity for hackers who often don't have to probe an environment too much until they find a way in. When you look at the organizations that you cross paths with, how well prepared do you think they actually are? Unfortunately, we have a bunch of organizations that are really part of the problem, right? They're only doing what is mandated. They've not invested appropriately to protect their own organizations. Um, and, and over and over again, we attempt to do more with less in IT. And rarely are we cutting the budget on capability or functionality. Um, security is often critically underfunded. And this has led directly to the mess that is cybersecurity in 2017. Do you think that's shifting, though? Do you think boards of directors are starting to to uh, look at cybersecurity in terms of risk and, and allocating appropriate funding for it? I think, yeah, I think we've seen, you know, some breaks in that ceiling. We've seen, you know, and I wouldn't say whole verticals, but we've seen organizations inside of verticals who've just gotten sick of it and have said, hey, look, we are going to re-architect our infrastructure. We are going to spend the money necessary. We are going to make things sometimes you know, harder to access, not easier, uh, because it's worth it, because we care about what we're protecting. We care about our customers enough to do that. That is um, unfortunately not where everyone's at, though. It's uh, just, I would say, some points of um, you know, uh, excellence in certain areas. So in your estimation, what sorts of things do we need to do differently? I suggest that collectively we stop playing the blame game here, right? We stop blaming users, stop looking for magic box solutions, stop blaming our governments and legislation, stop blaming the hackers. If you, you know, have an area where there's, you know, a lot of money, a lot of uh, capabilities, a lot of intellectual property, and it's connected directly to another area that doesn't, it's only natural that there's going to be some osmosis-like uh, seep and that people are going to look for that. Um, I suggest that we need to start looking insertly in, into the organizations themselves, and uh, we've got to collectively start doing the basics, right? So vendors, right, have been all too happy to send boxes that you deploy, and they sit on autopilot and kill bad stuff without human intervention. And I would um, argue that we've become over-reliant on that sort of technology when it comes to managing security and interpreting threat. These automated technologies um, are very effective at common problems, but they don't do so well in finding human, uh, you know, multi-partite attacks. And, and for that, we need security platforms, not tools, that talk to each other and enable, not replace your incident response team. And, and we need the right people to run them. You know, where technology helps is where it extends the accuracy and the capability of your team, not replaces them. We need to protect what needs protection and really protect it. And even if that means making it harder to access and more expensive, which has always been, hey, you can do some security here, but don't make it any harder. Don't make life harder. And this means things like compartmentalization, you know, active management of access, patching. Um, everyone says they do patching. Very few do it well. To do those sort of things, we need to know where the organizationally important data is. And we need to treat that stuff differently, right? We have to log the living daylights out of accesses to that organizationally important data and have people that are paying attention to its use. And, and that is unfortunately very rare. It's rare for organizations to even know where their stuff is. It's even more rare for them to have people paying attention to um, accesses to that stuff. 
It's easy to set up an IDS and say, hey, look for common attack types. It's way harder to look at who's um, using the data that we know is important to our organization and why. So we've got to resource this appropriately. The pain is going to continue till we stop cutting expenses with security. And lastly, people, people, people. People, not machines, are the fix to this problem. What do you say to people who would push back on that and say, you know, Gavin, I have to keep this organization running. This is a business after all. You know, you're, you're advocating that we you know, change the spark plugs in the engine while the engine is running. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would say that um, if you have to re-architect your entire IT environment in order to deploy security, that's indicative of some deeper problems with how you have things set up. So for those people, they're the ones that probably most uh, especially need to look into doing it. If it's uh, an easy fix for them to uh, uh, deploy better security and capabilities, um, they're a pretty modern network. It's the, the ones that have been around for a long time. Those are the ones that uh, actually need the help the most. And what's your advice for people in terms of determining how best to incorporate threat intelligence into what they're doing? Yeah, so we've got a, a ton of tools for doing incident detection that are deployed at most you know, large organizations. Um, those tools are only as good as the intelligence that we can play into those. And so once you've sort of worked out what your vertical specific uh, needs are, uh, getting intelligence that supports that needs, that's extensible, that's easy to use, that you can um, be uh, certain of the accuracy uh, of the data, you know, both doing automatic uh, pulls of data and pushing that data, and then doing more analysis on that data to see if there's a technique that you could be using uh, against the hackers themselves. All are very, very important parts of your uh, threat intelligence capability. Instant response, right, is as much of a fix for an organization's cybersecurity woes as fire alarms are for stopping fires. There are a lot of well-known, effective methodologies to harden your organization. Make sure you're investing in them. Our thanks to Gavin Reed from Recorded Future for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web, Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.